Hey, this is Brian. This episode was recorded a couple of months back, two days before I discovered that some of my fancy schmancy podcasting equipment had a short in it. And because of that, my audio toward the latter half of the podcast suffers quite a bit. And there's a little bit of knocking and popping along the way on Dusty and Mike's end, but that's, that's their fault, not mine. I think this was too good of an episode not to share, and we really enjoyed the conversation, so we just wanted to go ahead and share it with you. It's not bad. It's totally listenable. But, you know, please be aware. RPG Lessons Learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, Podcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at rpglessonslearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me, as usual, is Brian. Hey there, Dusty. I say as usual, Brian, but it's been hit and miss here lately. How are you uh, doing, man? Good. I, I've been sick, and we uh, talked about some adventures that I didn't participate in, and you know, a couple of them I was sitting here just waiting for you to call on me, but you never did. <laughs> Oh, Sets. burn. And Mike. Mike, how are you this fine day? I'm good. Dusty, how are you? I can't complain. Today, we are talking about another session in the Pathfinder campaign that we later dubbed Elemental, my dear. So, in this game, you guys were set against four Elementals that you discovered were going to converge on Sandpoint and wreak all sorts of havoc once the, you know four elements came together. I was actually really proud of us that we didn't make any Captain Planet jokes about the power of the elements combined, but There's there no was heart. no there was no heart elemental. Yeah. Nope. So that session, let's go ahead and do the numeric ratings. I'm actually giving the session a seven. We got moving immediately. I had learned that lesson from the mummy session. Um, we got moving and Again, I had the adventure pull you guys along. I was always laying the clue to the next encounter, and boom, 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 we went through several major encounters in one session that took, you know, a couple of hours, maybe two hours top. So, seven, it was a fast-paced, fast-moving game. I wouldn't go higher than a seven because I wish I had a little more emotional punch, a little more character-driven stuff. Um, this was This was more of a mission and let's go do the mission, even though it doesn't personally tie to any of the characters. So, seven, it could have gone higher with a better connection to characters' backstories. Brian, what's your rating? So, I have a question first. Uh, I'm trying to uh, recall this. Was Nathan remote for this game? He was remote, was he not? He was. Okay, that's so that uh, my memory is my memory is correct. Not is not faulty here. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight. Um, so I, in my mind, there, so there are two things detracting from this game. One was Nathan's connection wasn't great, uh, that I recall Two, we were testing roll 20 and I, I was just sort of thrown off. Um, I was just thrown off from my expectation because I thought we would be doing roll 20 all remotely. And just the fact that we were using remote, uh, roll 20 in the room was a little odd and it, it was a little clunky sometimes, but otherwise this game was like comfort food. Um, it like hit all of the the uh it hit all of the points that I, I really like in a game. It was fun. Um it was self contained. 
there were little hooks that we could figure out or not figure out that would help us along the way. Um, I, I, I don't know. Just something about this game it just really clicked for me. Had it not been in, on Roll20, um, I might have probably, I, I probably would have rated it higher. I like your comfort food analogy. This game was like, you know, a fun popcorn game that you can enjoy, but then when you're done with it, you never think about it ever exactly. again, even though it was a good experience. Exactly. And you know how sometimes we talk about these games, like, I don't remember that, you know, but like you sent this over last night and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this one because uh, this one just really clicked for me. Awesome. Mike? I think I'm probably going to go a seven. Uh, mimic the, the the same response as Brian gave about roll twenty. I remember that experience being a little uh, a little kludgy since most of us were in the room with one remote player. Um, I also want to echo your sentiment about there not being too much character impact. So also kind of along Brian's, I remember this game being you know less character driven, more combat driven, and and. While that may be a comfort food, sometimes that that makes the the experience a little less enjoyable for me. I think I cling a little more to those experiences where we do something weird or interesting or memorable as a character in character, and it helps define us a little more. And since that didn't have one of these moments, that gets a little bit of a lower rating in my book. Yeah, hey, I, maybe the wrong time to, to mention this, but so recently we've talked about how I, I enjoy the tactical aspect of. Um, of RPGs and tabletop. And be- prior to that, I never would have said that because I was so bad at it. And I really always preferred the role play. Thinking back, this may be the first game, or at, least, or at least the first game that I remember where I really, really got into the tactics of the, of the, of the battle and everything. I, I, I just really love this one. You know, if it wasn't for roll 20 and Nathan's internet at the time, I, w- I would probably give this as not, like a nine and a half. Wow. See, that's interesting. You mentioned the tactics. Cause I, and we may be again going off a little too early, but I felt this one was a little less tactical. I felt like the the four elements were just kind of the repeat of the same enemy. There really wasn't anything specific. <sighs> totally, totally get that. But okay. think think in terms of like um, like a, 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 an RPG or something. It was like something. It was like um, Dragon Warrior. You just uh, leave your, uh, your your home. You're, you find you find uh, yourself facing like uh, three slimes and a, a drachy, you know, not really a, a, a huge threat, really simple enemies, but uh, it helps you really understand and you know hone and refine your your uh, your methods. And uh, yeah, I, I for whatever reason this 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 really not only clicked but still resonates to this day with me. Enemy variety is an interesting topic that I don't even have in the show notes. So, Mike, you brought that up. Let's spend just a second on that, actually, because you you surprised me with that. Okay. I'm thinking, as I do the prep for this game and as I come up with these elementals and, and the idea and the plot and all that, I'm thinking, you know what? We've never fought an elemental before. We've never had an elemental in any of our games. The Pathfinder Beginner Box includes, you know, all four elementals. By God, I'm going to use them. And when I think about variety, I'm thinking about variety from one session to another. Like, hey, you know, a couple games ago we fought undead. Last game we fought some orcs. Um, we fought some guards before that. I want to do something different every session, and the beginner box lets me do that. So I thought this session was the elemental session. I don't so much go for variety in a single session, but you're indicating that you'd actually prefer that. So 
Yep, I think there's some to that. I, I, I think kind of maybe one thing I was a little disappointed with was the use of elementals and then, you know, kind of not your standard elemental encounter, right? So so normally in RPG land, when you encounter an elemental, you have to either fight the element with its counter element or find something about that element to use it to defeat it, right? So regular attacks shouldn't hurt it. Non-specific attacks of a, of a, a element that's not counter to the elementals element shouldn't hurt it and i don't recall us doing that i recall it being a pretty vanilla fight where you know you could just walk up to a fire elemental and smack it with your sword and it would take damage it did have some dr as i recall uh, or some of the elementals did and they had different mechanics but basically you're right the elementals had armor class and hit points and that's interesting you're saying i should have treated, treated the elementals not as an enemy, not as an NPC or a monster with hit points and armor class, but as, you know, almost a feature of the terrain that has no hit points. You can swing your sword if you want to, but it does no good. And there's some other way you have to deal with it like a puzzle. That is interesting. And now that you're saying it, God, I wish I'd done that. That's a good call. That's what I'm here for. So let's go ahead and start moving to the show notes. We've, we've covered some of the show notes already, and that's okay. I'm glad we had the conversation at the beginning. So elemental threatening standpoint, look, the overarching plot of this thing was the four elementals coming together. And I wanted you to realize throughout the adventure that someone was summoning these four elements to Sandpoint and that not stopping it, that letting them converge would be a disaster. Did you sense that danger or was this just another, you know, go here, do this quest? I sense that danger. And I think if I remember correctly back to playing this, I I thought there was a time element, you know, potentially included that if we didn't move fast enough, we would fail. Um, I think maybe at one point we actually split the party in an attempt to assess the situation and, and get more information on what was happening because of that time element too. Well, was there like a like a like a space time elemental that takes that you know exists in all the space that we inhabit? And no, he's saying that time I, is I, an I, element. I, I'm being silly. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although a space time elemental, hey, someone get on that. We um, we haven't done a time travel game yet. That could be that could be the hook. So. Good. You felt it. You felt the danger. Um, yes, there was a time element to it. This was timed. I kept talking to you about, okay, well, yeah, you do this and how that takes about this long. So I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. Um, if all four elementals would have made it into the temple, at we the would have end, been screwed. It, you would have been screwed. It would have been really rough to recover from. Um, in fact, I wasn't sure how I was going to deal with that aside from a TPK <laughs> we, and we, your yeah. children take over. Yeah. It, yeah. That's, I mean, we would have totally been screwed. Like, I felt a sense of dread. I mean, I'd never faced an elemental before. So in my mind, it's kind of like uh, we were facing, and, and we really were, you know, challenging um, enemies, adversaries. And uh, I felt a sense of dread just interacting with them because at any given time, I felt that they could uh, take us out. I knew that we were, you know, um, I, I just felt like that there was some sort of... Um, sense of oh finality is not the word uh there's a gravity to the situation that i felt in this game that i hadn't really felt before and it really uh culminated at the end perfect so the way this adventure actually started was shillelagh showing up and asking you all to 
deal with an earth elemental. She didn't call it that. She called it, you know, a, a rock creature that had suddenly appeared at, at an ancient, you know, plinth outside of Sandpoint. Um, and you show up, and, and here's this earth elemental, you know, rocks and grass and earth, you know, rolling and walking and shuffling in a circle orbiting this plinth. This map of, of the stone plinth, sort of a Stonehenge type map, and the mini that I'd put together of the elemental and the you guys minis that I had actually purchased. Um, so it would be the, the official Kyra, Ezra, and Valeros, um, and Merciel. Those were, this was our first fight in Roll20. These were our first time using digital assets instead of minis, digital assets instead of paper, physical maps. How was digital minis on a digital board? I didn't care for it. Yeah. <laughs> just just to put it out there. So, I mean, first of all, you know, thinking thinking through what you just said, you had to purchase digital assets of a paper asset you already owned. That, in my mind, strikes so many poor notes in my head, right? So, so I have that that gamer burn where I have to keep rebuying digital copies of physical games I've bought, you know, time after time and time again, that right off there kind of, kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It's like, well, if you own these paper assets, if there you have the should be these paper assets, Mike. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know. Right. Um, I'm, I'm an old man, but that, that first of all, <laughs> that first of all was, was the first thing that kind of set me off. Secondly, I mean, the whole point of me for playing with a map is, is being able to, to physicalize the space, touch, feel, move upon around doing that on a digital board just doesn't do anything for me. So I might as well just be playing theater of the mind. Yeah, exactly. That was exactly my point. I mean, if, if there's a tactile nature to this and if we don't have our hands on the minis, uh, theater of the mind, it, that just makes sense. And I mean, after this, we never played another roll 20 game, right? I mean, I think we agreed that we just didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Overall we did. We did L5R with Tanner after this, which was a much better experience. It was a fantastic experience. But yeah, we but, were, all, but yeah, we were all basically remote for that. Well, yeah. and it wasn't maps and minis. Yeah. That's true. It was just backgrounds and images. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Um, the digital licensing. I'm with you and I'm not with you. It's funny. I, I was just hanging out with my in-laws this weekend, which sounds terrible, but I actually really get along with my in-laws. Um, and we were talking about, we all love Kindle. Not to show for any one brand of e-reader, but uh, we love our e-readers. Um, I'm the one that actually got my wife's parents into e-readers as a great way to carry around 500 books in your pocket. I had a Kindle back when, you know, it was e-ink and not the fire thing. I still prefer my e-ink reader. Um, I never would have thought that a digital experience could compete with a physical book, but it totally did. I think the digital experience to compete with minis on a map is coming, but I don't think it's here yet. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, so just real quick about books. Um, so at some point in the future, I, I've, I've texted you guys and I've messaged you guys, but I haven't gotten a response recently. We're going to do that uh, podcast where we go around and actually just look like in bookstores and stuff for like absolutely. Um, yeah. But so there's a chain uh, in North Carolina and Tennessee, not that many stores, but it's called McKay's. I love that place. Um, I actually went to the one in Greensboro uh, Sunday and the one in uh, Winston Saturday and just yeah I, I love I love 
touching books. I love digging through books and I love owning books. But when I read books, it's on it's on my Kindle. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't translate at all to this. Did, did you find any RPG books while you were there? Uh, I didn't find the RPG sections. I know they have to have stuff because the one the one in Greensboro, for goodness sakes, has a Laserdisc section, which <laughs> yeah. blew my mind. They're, they're massive places, yeah. I was actually at the RPG shelf for the one in Winston two weeks ago. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, I picked up a couple things, actually. Cool. All right. So... Digital minis and digital map, it's it's just, for us, it's not there yet. Kyra, Ezra, and Valeris, you guys track the the, the magical connection. Um, you, you take this gem down off the plinth that had been controlling the Earth Elemental. <laughs> you used Detect Magic on it, um, and you track down the Elemental. We'll get to Detect Magic in a second. Um, what did you think of the tracking process? I, I described, Mike, if you'll recall, a, a thin magical line, um, very hard to see, like, like like fishing line. You had to hold the stone right and hold your head right to perceive it. But a very thin magical string connecting that stone with a faraway place, and you're trying to follow it. How was that scene? How, how, were the, 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 how was the skill challenge? that I made you do to successfully track down the other elemental. I think, uh, I think if I do remember back to that, we, we did a lot of trial and error until we just got it. And I think I remember you getting a little bit frustrated with us that we were basically, you know, just try, fail, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail that you were like, all right, you got it. This is how you do it. Just do it. I, I think I do remember that part of the game getting a, a little, a little agitating. But uh, otherwise, uh, I like the idea. I thought it was a good idea of basically a, a magic rope that you could follow. And let's talk about detect magic for a second. Oh, God. One lesson. Yeah, oh, God is right. One lesson I take away from the more modern games that make detect magic a cantrip is that, holy God, you had better be prepared to describe everything in terms of its magical signature. Because characters who have detect magic as a cantrip use it all the time on everything. Everything. Uh, yeah, honestly, in playing the game, I would get irritated because I wouldn't want to use detect magic, and Mike ended up using detect magic before me. Yeah. And it really got on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm the wizard, by God. Nope, I have it too, detect magic. I think by the end, I had gotten to where I would jot down notes about how things would appear when you cast detect magic. And I, I did a lot of reading about... You know, in fourth edition, I don't, I can't remember if it's a or not, but we didn't use it that much. You guys didn't use it that much. So when you would say detect magic, I would say, oh yeah, there's something magical over that way. And I basically described things as having an aura around them. I had to do a ton of reading about detect magic and about different descriptions of magic from different books and fiction to get enough ideas to be able to describe everything in terms of its magical signature. I feel so bad about that now. I feel yeah. like I've punished you by detecting magic. Well, I felt like times. an idiot. Like the fifth time you did it in the third session, and I'm having to fumble for like, uh, this thing glows blue. And I'm, it's just the lamest description ever where I hadn't prepped for detect magic at all. I felt like an idiot. So I got ahead of it. I don't think by the end of the campaign you noticed it, although, Brian, it sounds like you did. But I think, well, I know. I prefer systems where it's not a cantrip. It takes a spell to cast, and you only get so many per day so that you only use it when it counts. I, I also find 
detect magic should have a chance to fail, right? So when a rogue tries to detect a trap or a rogue tries to do something roguey, you know, they have a chance to fail. Most systems where you use detect magic, it's it's auto, auto, auto grant, auto win. You, you can't fail detect magic. And there needs to be a chance to say, oh, well, you attempt to detect magic, but you don't you don't sense anything i don't know that i agree with that i mean it, it depends on like the skill right so yes if it's something you're physically doing but like if i was a wizard maybe if i had like a stomach bug or something i could see my detect magic failing but i don't see why otherwise it would fail if if it's a cantrip and i can just do it at any time it's like it's like failing to breathe or you know failing that, that happens that, I, have, I have a special <laughs> device to keep me from failing breathing when i that, sleep that's true well, to, to use a different analogy it's like the predator failing to perceive infrared right right like it's just there and predators can perceive it so there's really no failing that check now you may not be able to interpret what it is but you can detect it right to me it's the tax you pay for playing in a world where magic is normal if magic is normal in the world, then magic has to be normal for me, and I have to get used to describing it. Um, but I guess a good caution point to GMs out there is if you haven't played yet, if you're listening and you're getting ideas to play, take a hard look at the cantrips. Take a hard look at the spells that your players can cast over and over and over and over, and just be prepared for them to cast them over and over and over and over. Um, I felt bad because in Martin's game, it wasn't even a cantrip, but locate object, the way it was written, you know, if we lost sight of someone, I would cast locate object on that person's shoe. You know, and, <laughs> and about the third time I did that, I caught the look in Martin's eye and I was like, and I just said out loud, Martin, I'm sorry. I see what I'm doing and I'll never do it again. <laughs> but just be prepared for characters to use the resources they have. If, if you're, Setting your game in a world with magic, be prepared to play with that magic. All right, so the air elemental. We've talked a little bit about this. Um, I tried to describe the air elemental with a lot of like noise and you know whooshing and having to yell at each over at each other over the roar of this basically tornado that you were fighting. Uh, and and here in the show notes, I ask. Was fighting elementals different? Mike, you've already commented that they had AC, they had hit points, so not as different as you would have liked. Looking at this map, looking at this temple, looking at this elemental, I'm in love with Mike's idea that I should have had something in the temple that you have to do. I worry now, though, too, though, would this have been an example, the classic bad GM example of a puzzle with only one solution? So if I had a specific Ooh. way for you to dispel the earth elemental and you didn't happen across it, would we have failed? And if you didn't fail and I had to hint and tell you, no, 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 this is what you're supposed to do, then how anticlimactic is that? That's a good counterpoint. I hadn't thought of it that way. The uh, the the cost of failure, does that does that make the game less fun than if you have something cerebral and puzzle-like and tricky? Yeah, I don't know now. Now I'm kind of thinking back on that. I'm going to go back to my kid analogy. I mean, if when when you have something like that and we just completely miss it, uh, Dusty has to feel like uh, like a disappointed parent. I mean, because like I I I want to do something cool for my kids, and it might inquire it might require like their input to do something or get something started, and they just don't get it. And I'm like, damn, why don't you kids get this? It's just so simple. 
<laughs> and uh, I can see Dusty now that you know I have that experience. I can totally see Dusty feeling that way as the the GM, and that would would have been the case here. I have never Why felt are that these way. These kids, so really stupid. good. It's like it's no. like playing cards with my brother's kids. I say that all the time because I understand it now. Yeah, I've never <laughs> felt that way, Brian, because I've always felt like if you're not getting it, it's because I did a stupid job describing it to you. Um, uh, don't be so sure. Remember the huge responsibility I feel, though, where I am your only conduit to understanding this world. Everything you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel comes from me describing it to you with words. So if you're not getting something, I'm going to blame myself before I blame you. Now, if you're making fart jokes, then, yeah, I'm going to blame you. If you are willfully making poor decisions... Like we recently talked about the guards guards game where you went up against the river rats in a full frontal assault. Yeah, that, that's on you. But if it's some kind of puzzle that we are supposed to do the specific thing with the earth elemental. Oop, Mike, I know how to do it. Yeah. I should have had you find and destroy the stone. Didn't we see? See, we, I tried that. I, yeah, yeah, I tried we, that. We tried that. Yeah, we actually tried that because I thought it was going to be some puzzly elemental thing. And I remember after we tried the stone, I was kind of like, oh, I guess we just smack it with the swords. All right, smack. And the hint I could have given you is I could have had a, a, a back pocket thing prepared where on a natural 19 or 20, or if it wasn't working, a natural 18, 19 or 20, I would have had your weapon pass through the elemental and happen to hit the gym and actually stagger this thing that you'd been unable to stagger before. There you go. To to okay. Well, great. I, I have a way to do it now. Um, for luncheons and dragons, it sounds great. For luncheons yeah. and dragons, actually, I may reuse this game for luncheons and dragons. That's not a bad call at all. I think you should. So, you finish with the Earth Elemental. So now two of the four elementals are down. You know that disaster is averted, whatever happens. But you follow the the different magical thread, and you arrive at an outdoor open air temple where. The fire elemental and the water elemental are coming together. And we had this map that was this open-air temple that was right on a cliff next to a beach. And I did a lot of description where as you show up, you see the fire elemental. You know, you're coming from the north. So off to your left, coming in from the east, you see this fire elemental burning through this forest, burning through this field, leaving, you know, charred black line in its wake, making its way to this temple. Over to your right, you see coming out over the ocean, this water spout, this, you know, tornado of water over the ocean, churning and making its way to you with, you know, gathering clouds. And these two elementals come together in this open air temple for you guys to fight. Was that evocative? Or by that point, was it, uh, we're almost done. Hurry up. I mean, it was, I mean, I can't say that I had a sense of awe from your description. I, what I had was a sense of dread, total and utter dread, because I thought we were going to be wiped. Yeah. I, I, I kind of remember coming here too, and it's like, oh no, we've ruined our chance to kind of take these guys out one by one. So now, we're not only going to face the final two elementals, but then whatever is in control of these elementals, too. So that final fight, 
it really used the environment. This open air temple, even though it was open air, open roof, there were still walls, you know, hedge walls and four entrances, you know, one in each cardinal direction. Um, we used the entrances. We blocked some of them. Um, you guys had to worry about line of sight. There was a lot to this encounter, and it was challenging. We'll touch on the challenging in a minute. But, Brian, I think I thought that this was the encounter that won you over to Roll20 because I specifically remember using the line of sight tool in Roll20 to make to, to talk you know, to see what Ezrin could see and couldn't see as he tried to cast spells into this temple. Am I wrong? Um, I don't think it won me on Roll20, but I think it really uh, helped sway, you know, sort of like how I played Ezrin at the very least uh, because when we went had the the last game against Black Fang's mom. I remember being very cognizant of things like line of sight and and in the utilization of this as well. I don't know, it's kind of like uh what's the what's the colloquial term? I was finally woke. <laughs> and, and, and I and I and I and I really understood like, you know, the the power of the tactics and not just going out and doing whatever I wanted to do. And um I, I I don't I don't think it won me over with roll twenty because again it just didn't feel natural but that specific aspect of it I do remember liking that because I really do like uh, thinking about line of sight um, but I don't think it was enough to win me over now. I'm actually going to say I specifically remember it now and that being the point where I got really turned off with roll twenty right because the the one thing I always hated about playing on maps was adjudicating line of sight rules and breaking out a ruler and trying to figure out is it partial cover is it total cover blah 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 and here we are doing this on a map with basically a digital ruler yeah yeah and that turned me off so let's talk about the difficulty of the fight um you guys had a pretty tough time despite the fact that they had ac and hit points you had a pretty tough time with the elementals i didn't look up their unique mechanics before we started recording. So, and I don't want to take the time to do that now, but each one had a few different abilities. They, they were, it wasn't the same attack over and over again. They had a few different resistances. So they were a little different from each other. And I remember you guys having a really hard time here, not coming close to a wipe, but uh, certainly running low on hit points. Did it, was it challenging? And if so, was it a satisfying challenge? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll I'll agree with that. I think this was probably one of the the closest times in this campaign. It came to being, you know, a fatal a fatal campaign. There were there were multiple threats. There was a threat of time. There was a, a threat of dying. There was a threat of having to fight multiple high level enemies at once, which is something we didn't really do in Pathfinder. There were only a couple of times where we were even encountered by multiple enemies at once. So. um yeah, I'd say it was a pretty pretty hefty challenge. Yeah, to, to like mix a sports analogy and a movie analogy, like this isn't a Rocky Four with like uh, you know Drago and Rocky going at it and uh, nearly killing each other, but it was like a, it was like a basketball game where at the half uh, you're down by uh, ten points and then you win comfortably by like you know seven or eight. Uh, it, it it didn't take us to our limits, but it really tested us. And I, yeah, I, I was totally concerned that I wasn't gonna wasn't gonna make it. So there was drama, but it wasn't skinning your teeth. Yeah, right. So 
The big bad, the, the thing summoning these demons, wound up being that evil dwarven cleric, the one that had sailed in on that ship um, back from the dwarf maid adventure that we talked about where the dwarves, these evil dwarves were selling dark artifacts to, to Sandpoint's youth. And he really seemed to spark some feelings in you guys. When I described who it was, I didn't even need to tell you that he was from that ship. You guys remembered it. Um... As I think about that, as I, as I look back on that, because he sparked feelings, would he have been a better big bad than Black Fang's mom? In in theory, no. In practice, maybe. Uh, Black Fang's mom, if you look at it narratively, um, you know, hindsight, it, I think, was the, a fantastic uh, prim- a big bad or primary adver- adversary. But uh, this guy... Um, I mean, for the entire campaign, he didn't show up. I mean, he showed up about what halfway through. Uh, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't like a personal connection uh, with him, other than the fact that we, you know, messed up his ship. Um, yeah, I, I, he, for whatever reason, he uh, clicked with us, but I just, I, I think that it was superficial. I, I don't think that there was. I, I, it was probably may have. It was probably honestly a recency bias. Oh, I remember him because he was in four. You know, he was here four games before. Got it. So, if hindsight, you know, were perfect twenty twenty, and we had the perfect chance to to redo this campaign again, I think the perfect ending would be Black Fang's mom working in league with this dwarf guy to overtake Sandpoint. Mm. That, that that makes sense. Yeah. But you know that's 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 knowing what we know now to to or, have come up with that at the time. Or we find out this guy worked for her. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. What if he not only escaped but humiliated you guys as he escaped? That, oh, 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 oh. So I could have used your recognition and made you freaking hate him in that, this encounter if I played it right. That 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 would have been really really good. Yeah, because if, if, if he had humiliated us as he got away, then we absolutely would have taken that perfectly, and we would have had a huge vendetta against him. Mm. Hindsight, hindsight. So, yep. the treasures. So, Brian, Ezrin got an iron stone. Um, an iron stone that, that orbited your head, you know, I think it was one foot away from your head, so the stone's constantly orbiting you. So, all of a sudden, you look like a higher-level wizard. And it's sustained you without food or water, which is directly out of the Pathfinder beginner box, you know, treasure. We rolled it and we got that. Um, we never really referred to that Ion Stone ever again. Brian, is it because it didn't really fit Ezrin's character's goals or personality or did we just forget about it? Uh, we don't re- we don't track resources. Uh, so no food or water really means nothing to us. Um, it didn't really fit the character. Uh, I mean, so I guess I could have squeezed it in because I did, I, I played him as like a really smart, uh, screw up. So I probably could have incorporated that, I guess, as like some sort of, um, some sort of, uh, something with his body that is entirely, uh, visible and outwardly facing. And it's, it's, it's immediately obvious that he's highly embarrassed of. I mean, I, that could have been fun, uh, but I think at the time I was stuck on the fact that we don't track resources, we don't track food, uh, so it, it really 
uh, just really didn't uh, come up. But if I had to do it over again, he would have uh, he would have had it. And he would have felt really he'd have been really self conscious about it. So it was the wrong fit for our game because it didn't match the way we were playing, and it didn't match Ezrin's character. If I had done something that was a little more, you know. Ezrin was a bit of a hedonist, a bit more hedonistic, like, uh, hey, this lets you immediately dispel hangovers or something like that. Would that have been more exciting? I, mean, I don't know that Ezrin was I – I wouldn't say that Ezrin was a hedonist. I would say that Ezrin was a poser. Ezrin thought he was cool. Ezrin wanted to be cool. Ezrin wanted to be a hedonist. But Ezrin, when it boils down to it, was – you know, he couldn't get a date. Uh, he only had a couple of friends and he really didn't, he didn't have anybody that he really trusted. And he, 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 he lived in a world where he had a, he started off with a goal, uh, to find his father and he was, he, he just never accomplished anything. And, uh, yeah, I, so is, is it fair to say that Ezrin was the Pathfinder version of a quintessential 90s slacker? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that, yeah, I mean, I'm not projecting anything on myself. I guess I could be projecting, like, the person I could have become, but fortunately I didn't become that person. Uh, but yeah, uh, he is, I wrote a lot of fanfic in the 90s, and some of the fanfic that I wrote was literally about fans. And he is basically a character that I took out of the Transformers fandom, and uh, basically he he's basically how do I say this? Being, he is he is somebody that I know basically, um, uh, but as a wizard, like as a level two wizard. If someone mispronounced Arcane around Ezrin, would he stop whatever he was doing and correct them? Um. Probably yes. He he would, uh, or he would just grit his teeth and not want to have to engage with them, uh, which is somewhat projecting me because some, a lot of times I hear stuff that I just I I want to I want to cry when I hear it, but I just pretend that I don't, so I don't have to interact with people. So the other treasure that you got from this session, um, the elemental gems, <laughs> which taught you that summoning and controlling elementals is a thing. Oh my god, I regret that. Oh, that was the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that that's what totally made the end of this campaign anticlimactic. That and our hoarding and failing to manage well, our I mean, inventory. Well, I, mean, this, I mean, that was us hoarding and failing to manage your inventory because we held on to that. Yep. Uh, so how many elementals did we actually have? Two or three? I think it was three. Four. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we had all four. But yeah. I don't think you got to use all four. Yeah, but we used no. we used them to great effect. In, in the final battle. Yeah, you you remembered all of a sudden that you had these gems in the last battle, and you just summoned these three elementals, and you just sicked them on Black Thing's mom, and they did almost all the work for you. <laughs> um, so yeah, wow, I, I regret teaching you about summoning and controlling elementals, which brings up a broader question that I wanted to raise for discussion. What's stopping your average player character, even in old school D&D, even in BFRPG, in, in any old school game, in any new school game, old school games had hirelings. You could hire men at arms for a fairly small amount of gold pieces per day. By the time you're 10th, 15th, 20th level and you have a ton of treasure, you may as well just hire 50 men at arms to go tackle, tackle this dungeon for you. What's stopping player characters from using hirelings? Or, you know, if God forbid your GM allows you to play as a necromancer, minions, 
or these earth elementals or whatever, what's stopping PCs from pretty much subcontracting out any missions they take on? Uh, for me, I think it's time. Like, if I had unlimited time to throw into my character in a game, I would do stuff like that. Um, so I guess I think in terms of, like, uh, emulation, you have to have a computer that's so much more powerful than another computer to, to simulate or emulate. Or, you know, like you have computers that can simulate reality, you know, to an extent, to a certain level, uh, to a certain resolution. You know, now that we're moving into quantum computers, we're going to have computers that are incredibly, you know, realistic when it comes to uh, modeling weather and things like that. That's because the, the processing power is the uh, is the limiting factor, and once that's <clears throat> cut out, you know, you know, the the, the sky's the limit. For us, it's it's time. If I had time to to simulate, you know, like what a, a real world would be, absolutely, I would do that. But I just can't sit down and build project plans, or I can't write a charter to give to give to my. Uh, to my underlings to go out and, you know, do whatever. I can't give them rules. Uh, just I just don't have time to do it because, you know, unfortunately we can't play D&D for a living. I, I, wish. I, I think the real answer to that, right, is, is the GM. I, no, 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 no. You, you, you had a great answer. But, I mean, if you think about a lot of people, they do have that kind of time. They do dedicate that kind of time to RPGs, tabletop games, whatever they do. I think the real answer to that is is the GM, right? So at some point, if you as a GM feel that's being that, that, that player's activity is being detrimental to the game or that it's causing some other person's game to not be fun, I think that's exactly where the GM has to step in and say, okay, I understand you've got all these resources and while you're applying these resources in a way that is valid to the game rules, we need to talk about how it's limiting people's fun. And if it's not limiting any other player's fun, then there's no harm. You know, actually thinking about it, going back to my analogy, um, the GM is basically the computer and it's not, it's not even just my time. Uh, like I could set up the rules, I could write the project plan, but the GM would have to go and figure out like what all these underlings do. It's his adjudication time. And, yeah. yeah. So, um, so maybe if we had like five GMs on a given <laughs> on a given campaign, uh, we could totally do something like that. Uh, but you know, in reality, unfortunately, you can't do it. Yeah, we've definitely talked about the GM being the bottleneck or the constraint. The GM's attention and time is the constraint at the table. Because the GM's the only person who's always playing. Yep. Okay. All right. So lessons that we learned from this session. Um, a lesson that I didn't expect to learn that I'm taking away from here is, and ironically, I've said it before too, but I, I guess I, I didn't think about it in the moment. The second, the second as a GM, you recognize your players emotionally investing in anything, to love it, to hate it, to be be enthused by it, to be to find it heartwarming, whatever, whatever that emotional response is, instantly take a second. If you have to, take a bathroom break. Just get away from the table and just think for a second about how you can exploit that. The second these guys recognize that that evil dwarven cleric, I should have taken a minute to think. Ooh. How can I milk this? How can I draw this out? How can I take this emotion and really leverage it? Because I would have completely had him get away and get away in a way that was just infuriating to build their recognition and eagerness to kill him into a hatred. 
I should have done that. Biggest lesson from this session. What lessons would you guys add? So for me, um, I mean, not as a GM, but as a player, uh, I mean, if, I mean, do what feels right, I guess. I mean, I had, I hate to say I had to sit there and use roll 20, but in reality I did for that, that campaign. And I think I made the most of it, um, but I, I'm really walking into no point right now because I completely forgot what I was trying to say. Uh, so let's let's continue this editing out mode, and let me go back and try to collect my thoughts. I usually don't turn lessons over to you guys. I can try to keep covering it if you want. Uh, no, let's let's see here. What other lessons can we learn from this? Um, so we hardly talked at all about Nathan being remote, which for me was a detriment. Just having the one person re- uh, remote. Um because it just it feels unnatural. Yeah, but we've talked about that so much in previous episodes. But I, I just don't think there's any new meat to mine there. Uh, but he, this was the... How many times do we actually just have Nathan remote? Once? Just once or twice? Yeah, so, I mean, like, being remote is one thing, but when you have everybody else in the room and one person remote, we didn't really get into that. Actually, how about, let, me, let me say that. So we really didn't talk too much about Nathan being remote, which uh, bugged me a little bit, not because of... You know Nathan or anything like that specifically, but it to me it feels unnatural when you have one person who is remote and everybody else is in the same room. I mean, when everybody is remote, you have sort of the same handicap. Uh, but when you have one person who's remote, it's it just it, it, everybody else can hear just fine. People have no distractions, uh, or we have you know the same distractions. Uh, I don't know, it just, it creates an unequal playing field. Now, true, it's the case when you're all remote, you know, the person with the best internet connection or has the, who has the fewest hops, you know, to whatever server, however it works, you know, Skype is peer to peer, whatever, uh, but, um, or whoever has the best microphone, but it's just when you have one person in who isn't there and everybody else is like huddled together at a table, uh, it almost makes it unfair for that one person because anytime there's a hiccup or anytime there's an issue, you kind of just blame them. So synthesizing that into a lesson, it's, you know, if you have to have one person in a different situation, be extremely aware of that. Be extremely aware of that. I like that, Dusty. And, and avoid it if possible. But if you, if you can't avoid it, just make a lot of concessions for it. Yep. That's fair. Anything about the treasure, Mike? We talked a lot about the elemental stones and how OP they wound up being, uh, the iron stone and how far off base it was. Anything you change about the treasure? You know, we, we've talked about this a lot, and I, I don't think it's a good lesson. I think it's something that, that requires some more learning on our parts. And, and maybe if there's someone out there in the community who can, you know, help us with what they do in their game, you know, hit us up on the Twitter or whatever. But how do you grant your players treasure but then have your team manage that treasure when no one on the team wants to be the appointed treasurer yeah be mindful about how they're managing their treasure currently and don't give them something that they can use to screw you over with in the end and what do you do to players who don't mind their treasure for the whole game until the last game when all of a sudden because their awesome gm has sent them a whole list for every game of every email of everything they've ever had and they can mine those emails how do you how do you work around that i learned a lot of lessons about treasure throughout this entire campaign but we covered those in the the campaign right off i think in upcoming campaigns 
I'm going to be a lot more careful about you. I'm going to give you flavorful treasure a lot. I'm going to give you favor with the town. I'll give you the equivalent of, Hey, from now on you drink on me, but uh actual treasure that could impact an encounter. I'm going to be very careful about it. I like the idea of, of character flavor treasure, right? As soon as you said, Hey, from now on you drink on me, I can think of a ton of things that our party would immediately do with that to, to have fun with it and could potentially impact how the game plays out. So I, I really like that a lot. I think there's a lot of potential there. All right. I think that is RPG lessons learned for this week. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you. <laughs>